Good morning. It's good to see you all again. Uh, I was away for the week off at family camp. I know a few of us, you have the Tolises and the Haynes, were at family camp. Uh, good time had by all. Um, it's good to be back here, though. Uh, to open up, we'll just go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Father God, uh, just thank you for bringing us all here again this morning, this beautiful Sunday morning, and God, I just ask that you be with us, that we may have a great week, a week that pleases you and blesses you and honors you, and God, I just ask that you be with us this morning, let this morning be all about you, I just ask that you speak through me and that uh, your people, your children, your church, uh, they may be receptive to your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and open up with a scripture, 1 Peter 3.15. So if you can go ahead and flip there, or the verse, again, will always be on the back there. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to just read one verse, and that's verse 15. And it reads, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so what I want to take note is here is that Peter's telling us that we need to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now the question is, Peter calls us to be ready at all times to make a defense for the hope that we have, but the question then is, are we truly Indeed, ready to make that defense for what we believe in, the hope that we have, the faith, the faith in Christ Jesus and the Lord our God? Are we ready to make that defense, the defense of the Bible, of the Bible that's the foundation of our beliefs, where we get our beliefs from? Are we ready to make that defense? Because Peter tells us that at all times, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. And that hope is in God and Christ Jesus, his son. And we have that hope because of the Bible. We have that hope because of God's word. And so in other words, Peter is telling us that at all times, we need to be ready to be able to defend this, God's word, the Holy Bible, our truth and our beliefs. And so this morning, we're gonna be talking about how to prove the Bible is true. And we're going to examine 10 ways and how you can prove to others that the Bible is indeed true. And I'm going to give you guys a disclaimer. This is going to be a little bit more of an informative sermon, not as exciting or riveting, but nonetheless, it is very, very important. It's an important message that you guys need to know because not only do you need to defend your faith to others, but a talk like this It can increase your own faith. It can give you confidence that this truly is, this truly is God's word and there is a God out there and there is a son, Jesus Christ out there who died for our sins. This talk, I'm hoping, will give you guys faith and confidence in the Bible and in turn, you can share other people the faith and confidence that we have. And so out there in the table, I had uh, sheets available for everybody. If nobody has, if somebody doesn't have them, they can get them out there. Uh, It's just going to be kind of a brief outline of the sermon that I'm going to be uh, giving to you. 
And so we see on the outline there's 10 reasons. And so we're going to start with the first reason. And the first reason how to prove the Bible is true is, well, you see, the Bible claims it. We can see in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is a, a letter from Paul to his uh, mentor, his mentee, uh, Timothy. And Paul is telling Timothy that, listen, in first, 2 Timothy 3.16, he writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, this verse is great for us because it confirms to us that this whole, this whole Bible, all the scripture, it is God-breathed, and we know that if it's God-breathed, it has authority. It has authority. It's truthful, and it has authority over us in our lives, in the lives of those of other Christians. And so that's great. This is a great verse for us. It, the Bible claims itself that it is true. It is breathed by God. However, we can't stop here just because the Bible claims it's true, because any atheist or agnostic or anyone of any other religion they're not going to care that the Bible says the Bible is true. So we need to go far beyond this one simple reason as to why the Bible is true. So we can't stop there. So reason number two is because of archaeology. There are many, many archaeological finds um, recently uh, going back to the Bible times. There are many, many finds that prove that the Bible may be true. It proves to things that are looted into the Bible or in the Bible. But yet, there is not one single archaeological find that goes against what the Bible says. So there are these many finds that support the Bible, but there's not one single archaeological find that helps disprove the Bible. And I'm gonna be, we're going to be talking about two great archaeological examples or findings that help us prove the Bible is indeed true. And the first one is the walls of Jericho. Uh, I think we all know the story of the Israelites marching around uh, the walls of Jericho as they're on their, on their way conquering God's promised land, conquering uh, the city of Jericho. And they march around it, and they blow the trumpets, and they holler, and all of a sudden the walls crumble, and they fall. And now what's important is that when we go, when archaeologists go to the city of Jericho now, they notice a few things. One is that the walls fell outward, not inward. Now, back in that time, uh, they didn't have any other way to really take down a wall other than bombarding it and shoving it over and kicking it over or with those big battle rams, they would knock over the walls. But when that happens, the walls fall inward. But if you were to go to the site of city of Jericho right now, you can see that the walls actually they fell outward, and they fell outward because of the way God, he took down the walls. It's not by man's own work that they, they took down the wall by force from the outside, but rather God took down the walls. And if we remember in that story of the walls of Jericho, uh, we can remember about the, the prostitute Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, and uh, they were sending out 12 spies to search out the land, and uh, these, these spies went into the city of Jericho, and this prostitute Rahab let them in to the city to scout it out. And uh, God promised Rahab that he would protect her house and that her house would still be standing. And I wanted to show you guys a quick video clip from the documentary Patterns of Evidence. Has anyone seen that? <laughs> 
It's, it's a great one. Uh, it's on Netflix, easily accessible. Patterns of evidence. It's talking about the exodus and proving that it's true. But in, in, in the, that documentary, it, it shows interesting things about the walls of Jericho. My favorite part about the whole documentary is they show film of the walls of Jericho. And to this day, to this day, thousands of years later, you can still see where Rahab's house was. You can still see that part of the wall is higher up than the others because God is a, is a faithful God and he keeps his promises and we know that God kept his promise with Rahab. And so we can see that all the walls are crumbled, but in this one spot, Rahab's house is still standing slightly. And so that, that is astounding that this happens, this doesn't happen by chance, that the walls fall outward and that there's one part of the walls that are still standing. So this is, this is great. This is our true archaeological findings that do indeed prove that the Bible is true. And now another one is uh, the house of David. Many uh, Bible critics believe David to be a myth because David, King David, he is a very important foundation of our faith. He was a very important king of Israel. However, many, many people who critique the Bible, uh, they thought that King David was possibly a myth. However, in the year 1994, so rather recently, they discover what's called the Tel Dan Steel, or Stella. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. But anyways, it's an inscribed stone that baked that dates back to the 9th century BC. So it dates back shortly after the reign of King David. And in this inscribed stone, it uses the phrase house of David and refers to King David's house and the rule of King David, talking about how his ally, whoever uh, wrote in this inscribed stone, he was talking about his ally, King David, and he wrote the house of David. Now, this inscribed stone is important because prior to the year 1994, there were no external evidence from the Bible that King David truly did exist. But this is crucial and and important, this finding Because it does prove, indeed, that King David, he really did exist. He's not just a myth, as many believe that he thought may have been. No, he was not a myth because there is external evidence from the Bible, from those archaeological findings, that King David, he really is true. He is real. He was truly a king back in the day. And so through these archaeological findings, again, as I said earlier, there are many findings that prove the Bible is true, but there's not one single archaeological finding that disproves the Bible. And now the third reason as to why we can prove the Bible is true is because of the many medical insights that God had. So as we know in the books of the law, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of laws that God tells his, uh, his followers, his his people of Israel, and uh, that can be a little tiresome uh, reading so much law. And there was a lot of law. I, in my sermon last week, I mentioned that there were 613 Jewish commandments or Jewish laws. And now why, we ask, why did God have that many rules? The answer is not because God was a legalistic God and he wanted to make sure his, his followers were doing this, this, and this just be, so he can show him his power. But rather, God had these rules and these laws because he cared for his people. He cared for his people of Israel. He wanted to take care of them. The laws were there for their own protection. And we can see this with the law of circumcision. And we can see the law of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. 
Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. It's the very first book, just 17 chapters into it. Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 9. And what's going on here is that God is forming his covenant with Abraham, that his descendants will be as numerous as the, as the stars in the heavens or the sands on the seashore or the dust of the earth. And so God said to Abraham in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so it's... Science nowadays has discovered that circumcision is important because it can decrease the chance of getting certain diseases or certain inf infections. And this, this was studies and sciences that they did not have back in the 1500 B.C., 1445 B.C., the time of, uh, of, of Abraham and Moses and the law. They did not have this data, this knowledge to prove that circumcision could help uh, prevent these diseases or infections. But the really cool part about this passage is in verse 12, God says, he who was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And now we ask, why explicitly does God say on the eighth day we shall be circumcised? And that's a good question. Well, Again, recent studies show that there's a protein present in a blood plasma called prothrombin. Are there any doctors or nurses out there? Am I pronouncing that right, prothrombin? I got, I got a nod, yes. Hey, that's a victory for me. So there's this, there's this protein in blood plasma called prothrombin. And basically what this does is, well, I don't know all what it does, but what it does help with is it clots blood when you're bleeding. And when a child is young, they have this protein in their blood. And on the eighth day of all the days, on the eighth day exactly, this protein in your blood plasma, it peaks on the eighth day. This protein that helps clots blood so you don't lose too much blood is the highest on the eighth day. And what do we see here? God told his people, his children, that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day exactly. Now that does not happen by chance. One can maybe argue that God told or commanded these Israelites to be circumcised by chance, but being circumcised on the eighth day exactly, that's the best day to be circumcised, that does not happen by chance. That is a God thing. That is a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful. Back in the day when people did not know much about science, that is a God who cares, and that is an example of the medical insights that the Israelites had way before anybody else had those medical insights. And another example of the medical insights is pork. Now, who here likes to eat bacon? 
I like me some bacon, some good bacon or ham or pulled pork. Those are some of my favorite meals. I'm, I'm a big meat dude, and I like me some good meat from a pig. But as many of us probably know, uh, that in the Old Testament, um, in Leviticus 11:7, God tells the Israelites that they are to not eat any meat from pigs. What? No meat from pigs? Some of the best meat? Now why? Why did God have this again? It's because... Pigs are scavengers, as many of us know, and they eat practically anything they can get to. And it can infect their muscles. They'll eat a lot of unhealthy stuff that gets in their bodies. And when you cook that food, some of that unhealthy stuff can stay in that body. And without proper cooking, some of that bacteria and icky food that these pigs eat, without proper cooking, the bacteria stays in the muscle and can cause serious sickness or even death. But God knows all things. Back in the time when there was no studies on how to properly cook foods and the idea of bacteria, there was no such thing as the idea of bacteria back then. But God told them to not eat of the pig because it could be very, very dangerous to eat of, of, of the pig when there's no proper cooking. And of course, back then, there were, they did not understand proper cooking very well. So those are two great examples of the medical insights that the Israelites had because of God back around 1500 BC, way before any studies could ever show. Now the fourth reason as to why we can prove the Bible is true is because of the unflattering honesty in the Bible. A lot of people, when they make up lies or they make stuff up, they generally do it to make themselves sound good or the idea they're talking about sound good. But people don't talk about lying about stuff because to make it unflattering. And we can see this in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what's going on here is that Jesus, our hero, our Lord and Savior, the main hero of the Bible, is saying that, listen up, guys, most people in the world are going to follow along the broad road, the wide road. And that gate, that road, that leads to destruction. Now there's a narrow gate and a narrow road that leads to life, but unfortunately few are going to find it. Now if this Bible were just made up, if it were a lie, why in the world would they make a lie where most people are going to die? That makes no sense at all. No sense. If they were going to make a lie, they would say that many people are going to have eternal salvation. Many people are going to enter through the gates of life. But no, Jesus says that many people are going to be entering through the gates of destruction. Now that is not something that one would make up. We can help prove that the Bible is true because at times it's quite unflattering. A lot of our heroes of the Bible, our heroes of faith, they were not all that good people. David, he was a liar. He committed adultery. He had someone killed. 
Saul, or who came into Paul, uh, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He killed numerous of Christians. And the, this is just unflattering. This is the kind of stuff that America would hide in their history books. When you see in the history books, you see a lot of our bad history being hidden. But no, this is true stuff in the Bible. God is not afraid to show that because it shows that the Bible, yes, it's unflattering at times, but it's true. It's honest. Now, the fifth reason as to why we can prove the Bible is true is because of martyrdom. There have been thousands and thousands of people who have died for this faith, the faith in God and Christ. And now these people risked their lives for this faith in the Bible. But the question then is, why would someone risk their life for something that wasn't true or something that they weren't truly convicted that was true? Thousands of people have died for this faith. People right now in this day and age in the Middle East are dying because of their faith. And they're not dying because of some made-up beliefs of some made-up God. No, they're dying because they're convicted that there is a God out there. They're convicted that the Bible here, it has all the answers. It is God's word. It is God's breathing. It does have authority over us. So we can help prove that the Bible is true because of all these people who have sacrificed their lives for it. And number six is incredible preservation. Now, supposedly, the oldest book to those who do not, do not believe in the Bible is the Etruscan Gold Book, and that's about 2,500 years old, or in other words, about 500 B.C. But now, the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Moses, that was written approximately 1445 B.C., or in other words, about 1,000 years earlier than the other oldest book of the Bible. And this manuscript, this Bible, this book, the Pentateuch, it all started with just one original copy that Moses wrote, and it was written in the language of Hebrew. And we know in the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And so we have this Old Testament written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic and the New Testament writ written in Greek thousands of years ago. But what do we have today? We have this Bible, this God's word right here that was not originally written in English, but this Bible is now translated in over 500 languages. And this is important because other, other manuscripts, old, old manuscripts, they don't have the amount of copies or true manuscripts that the Bible has. I know me myself, uh, I have troubles keeping a hold of my wallet or my phone or knowing where they are at all, at all times. Uh, I get teased a lot for, uh, I had two phones um, and both times uh, I broke them uh, for, because I forgot they were in my pocket and I went into the hot tub and uh, that was bad news bears for any electronic devices. So don't, kids, don't take your phones into water. That's a bad idea. And so I can't even keep care, keep track of my own phone or wallet. But here we have this one original manuscript. And now we can see God's word throughout the whole world. It's the oldest book alive. And that's incredible. It's incredible that it was persevered through this whole time. And we can ask, why is that the case? It's because of God. God sought that the Bible would be brought to us and that we would have God's truth. 
Now, number seven, this personally is the most convicted uh, reason for me, convicting reason for me, the predictive prophecy. Now, scholars, whether biblical or not, they, they don't disclaim that the Old Testament was written hundreds or thousands of years before the New Testament. They don't disprove that. But now, there are many prophecies that take place in the Old Testament that were either thousands or hundreds of years before the New Testament. And these prophecies, they're fulfilled in the New Testament. These crazy things that, uh, that these people were predicting, these so-called prophets were predicting, they were taking place thousands of years later. That does not happen by chance. And we're going to go ahead and just take a look at two examples. Micah chapter 5, one of the 12 minor prophets Micah chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 2. Micah 5, 2. And it reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So here in the the book of Micah, um, it says that, but from you, O Bethlehem, there is going to be one who is a ruler. He's going to rule over Israel. He's going to come from the clans of Judah. And we can see this prophecy being fulfilled through the life of Jesus. Jesus, as we know, was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Now this is a crazy prophecy because Bethlehem was a, was a very small little town. And there were two parts of Bethlehem. There, were, there was oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and there was another part of Bethlehem. But Jesus was indeed born in this part of oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So this, from this small town, prophecy hundreds or thousands of years before Jesus was born, it prophesied that Jesus was going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. That's incredible. If we look in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 69, verse 21. Psalm 69, 21 reads, They gave me poison for food, and for my, fir- for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now if we go ahead and flip to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 28. It reads, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jew said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And actually, I think I have the wrong verse there. My bad. But what the verse is in one of the Gospels, I'm sure it's chapter 18, verse 28 through 30. This uh, verse is talking about how Jesus, he fulfilled that prophecy in Psalms chapter 69. Because in Psalms chapter 69, verse 21, it says that they would give him vinegar. And we see 
in the story of the cross, of Jesus dying on that cross and the crucifixion, we can see that Jesus says, it is finished. After he took that drink from that vinegar that the Roman soldiers gave him, he says, it is finished. All the prophecy of Jesus here on earth has been fulfilled in just the dying moments of Jesus when he said, it is finished. It's incredible that these things happening hundreds or thousands of years before the New Testament take place, they were predicting all of this and it, and it all came true or is yet to come true. That's incredible. That does not happen by chance. It just doesn't. Now, reason number eight uh, as to why uh, the Bible is true is that because of the eyewitness, uh, many of the books of the Bible were written by actual eyewitnesses. Uh, the, the authors of the Bible, they weren't just some random people writing about random events, but no, these were people who saw, who saw what was going on. They were eyewitnesses to what was actually happening. And we can see this in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Just one example of someone who was an eye, eyewitness to what was going on. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, And as much as many have under, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concerning the things you have been taught. So basically what here is Luke is introducing his gospel, the gospel about Jesus. And he said that these things aren't just made up. Rather, these are things that people have seen. Luke himself was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Or he, he got information from other eyewitnesses. Regardless, G, Luke got this information about Jesus from eyewitnesses themselves. And this is the case of most of the books of the Bible. They were, they were written by people who actually saw what was taking place. Now, the reason number nine as to why we can prove the Bible is true is because of your own personal testimony. Um, people respond very well when you open up to them and become vulnerable to them. Uh, they don't want to see you as a hypocrite uh, that is labeled as a Christian. They want to see how the Bible indeed has changed your life. People respond to personal testimonies. And I can speak for myself that because of these words, because of these words that God has spoken, my life has been changed. Because of these words, my life is different. And the power that the personal testimony has, the power that your story has, it's very powerful and it can impact someone's decision or influence their thoughts on the Bible and knowing how it's true. Because the Bible, it does have power. It does have power that can change one's life. And your personal testimony can help show others that the Bible truly is, and indeed is true. And the last reason that we're going to go over this morning as to why the Bible is true is because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, many will claim that Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. They, some will claim that it is a myth. However, there are three facts that historians do not deny. 
They do not deny the fact that Jesus, yes, he was killed on the cross. Historians, people who are level-minded, even-minded, they will not deny the fact that Jesus was crucified on the cross. There are many eyewitnesses of that. The second fact, historians do not deny the fact that, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but then he was buried in the tomb. They do not deny that fact. And the third fact that historians do not disclaim as false or claim as false is that Jesus, after he was dead on the cross and buried in the tomb, that Jesus was missing from the tomb. So where these myths come from is they take these three facts and they try to come up with some reason as to how this could have happened. Some thought that maybe the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. Or there's these many, many false theories as to what happened to Jesus' body. So there are these many hypotheses. But after Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can see in the Gospels that there were over 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. There were over 500 people who knew that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in the tomb and that Jesus was missing. And there were five, over 500 people who saw Jesus himself. The eyewitness hold much power in authority. The evidence is just too large to deny the fact that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the grave. If anyone were to look at this story open-minded, they cannot deny the fact that Jesus was resurrected because Jesus, he was died on that cross, he was buried in that tomb, and he was missing. What do we see? What takes place next is that over 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus himself. That doesn't take place wherever 500 people make up the same story of seeing Jesus after he was dead. People don't make up crazy stories like that, at least not over 500 people. This is huge of all the eyewitnesses, of all the ministry that Jesus was doing after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven. It's huge that there were over 500 eyewitnesses. And so these are 10 great reasons to prove that the Bible is true. And so I encourage you and I urge you guys to take this list home, keep it in your Bible or in your room, or study this list, do some more research on your own as to how to prove the Bible is true. Because in order to defend our faith, as Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 3.15, in order for us to defend our faith, we need to prove that the Bible is true because all of our beliefs, all of our truths, they're based off this book. They are based on God's word. And in order to defend our faith to others and evangelize to others, which we are called to do, we need to prove that the Bible is true. And this can also help, as many of us may have doubts at times or question as to whether this really is true, whether of all the religions out there, whether this really is the true religion. Hopefully that this list these ideas of how we can prove the Bible is true. Hopefully, that can give you guys more faith in the Bible and confidence that God's word it is authoritative and it does have authority over our lives.